Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Paulo Sores on the show. Paulo is the CEO of Camarena Health, the community health clinics that are an integral part of our health ecosystem. We cover a lot in this conversation, including the history of Camarena Health, care deserts, preventative care approaches, ways to support various demographics, medical expenses, labor challenges, and more. Please enjoy this fascinating conversation, and Baker will take us there. Fresno's best! So where do you like to eat in Fresno? All right, well, great question. But I could give you a, a, probably a pretty good list, which is a nice thing to say, because I think sometimes you hear a lot of folks complain that there's nowhere to eat, right? If I had to just say like a staple, like easy to go to, always good, I, I'm going to go with the Mad Duck. Just they're solid, consistent. Uh, any other locations you go to, it's just a good place, good menu. So that's probably one of my just, just easy go-tos. If I'm going with the kids or my wife, we just want somewhere to go. It's always, it's an easy consensus <laughs> that mm. that we'll all agree on. But man, beyond that, I mean, I think there's some, I live out in Clovis, Trelio is a place my wife and I love to visit just a great local little spot a pretty intimate setting great food chris does a great job there changing up that menu yeah we've got some good places annex is a place that we've really enjoyed going to it's funny we like every so often we're like we gotta go get that shaved kale caesar salad mm. <laughs> we almost drive across town just for that well i love having so, annex now so Annex for a while was our place when people from out of town, usually coastal cities, came to try and sh- show them our culinary scene. But now it's, uh, we just had a friend from Los Angeles in town and we took him to Saison to kind of just show off. So it's nice having places that are like good for local and then good for like when you have visitors from out of town. So you can kind of say, we we have the range too. We have everything from taquerias to fine dining. Absolutely. We just had a chance actually this weekend went to Saison and absolutely loved it definitely a different scene that we're accustomed to which is really nice and and in touching on the tacos i mean for me i'm always you know i could go for tacos all the time our office i work up here in madeira and so i'm always running around town finding some some good tacos and so that's always high on the list and a go-to meal for me as well well when we finish recording i'll give you my madeira taco recommendation <laughs> all um, right perfect So we're going to just jump into kind of some general topics before we get into some meaty stuff. I want to talk about community health centers because I know people are familiar with the concept. They're part of our community, but maybe people don't know how they emerged. So let's just kind of dig into the history for a second. So how did community health centers emerge and how has the world of community health centers evolved since the Economic Opportunity Act of 1964? Yeah. So they, I mean, to your point there, I mean, they really started in the mid sixties and it came about as just a way to provide access to healthcare in a lot of kind of underserved communities and to populations that historically didn't have that access to primary care. And so it's been many decades now and they've evolved quite a bit. And I think you can see that really in the central Valley I think is just a great kind of snapshot of how they've evolved from really being kind of these small health centers serving kind of a very specific population to where now the community health centers really here in the Valley. I mean, I have to tell you that some of the health centers here in the Central Valley are the largest in the country, just with respect to locations and and patients being served and services delivered. But I think They've evolved in a way in that, and I'll just, I'll use our camera and health as an example. We started back in 1980 and similar to the health centers that started back in the mid sixties, a few folks got together and created a health center to serve farm workers. There was a lot of farm workers here in the area. They couldn't access care. Certain private kind of doctor's offices didn't want to see them or they didn't take their insurance or they were uninsured. And so they created this just one office little spot for these folks to have access to. And so we've really evolved now 40 something years later, we see everybody and we are actually the largest provider of primary care services in Madera County. And as the just kind of landscape of primary care as a whole has changed 
I'd always say community health centers kind of used to be this provider of last resort for folks that were down and out and had nowhere else to go. Whereas now we're really becoming the provider of choice. Uh, whether you're uninsured or you've got a HMO plan, commercial plan in, in many of these areas, we are that, that primary contact. And that's driven by a couple of things. Community health centers are in a lot of areas that you go outside of Central Valley and just look at California and you get into some of these really rural communities, even Northern California, you get in these kind of frontier type areas. They're the only medical facility in the community. So there's not an option of, well, I want to go here or this place. They're it. And if they weren't there, these folks who live there really wouldn't have access or they'd be driving a great distance just for a primary care visit. Yeah, And, and so the to- evolution has really taken place to just really serve everybody and really just become another provider in the healthcare community, just like many other practices that exist. Yeah. And we're going to talk about care deserts in a second, because that's an important concept. I think we're familiar with the concept of a food desert where there's not a lot of grocery stores, but care deserts are just as impactful on people's lives, if not more so. Let's, let's, is Cameron Health a traditional community health center? Is it what they call a lookalike, where there's not really federal funding in the same way? It is. No, we are a fully federally qualified health center. Okay. So what, what, does, what does that mean? And what are, are there challenges with eligibility and maintaining certain practices? I want to say there's challenges. I think what probably a lot of people don't know about what it requires to be a federally qualified health center is and I always kind of like to brag about it because it's stuff that I know most doctor's offices and physician practices don't go through, which is, I say if there was a challenge, there's a heavy burden of reporting. And so we're reporting everything that we do, all of our clinical outcomes, how well we're treating our diabetics, how well our hypertensive patients are doing, what are our cancer screening percentages, and we're held accountable to hit certain marks. And when we want to renew our federal grant, we have to go through a long process to show that we're meeting the needs of the community. Our board of directors have to be at a minimum 51% patient-based. So the folks who we are providing care to have a role in overseeing and, and being on the board of directors for the organization. We have to show that we're doing regular needs assessments and assessing the needs and that we're molding our services and our locations and our health centers to the community and to their needs. And so I think that's a really great thing because it's a great level of accountability in making sure that we're really delivering the high level of care that's expected of us. And so that's a lot of what comes along with being a federally qualified health center and maintaining that status is just a lot of that regular reporting. I'll give you an example here in about three weeks, we have a a operational site visit and it happens every three years and it's a three day and they review our clinical, our financial, our governance. And it's a real deep dive through all of our processes and our procedures, and they review patient records. And so it's a it's a big process, but I think it's one that really helps maintain a certain level of standard and care within the community health center world. That kind of rigorous oversight and evaluation and assessment is so important. And I honestly wish there was a, it was a practice that was more universal because I think we would get a better healthcare product in the United States if we had that level. What was, so that you kind of touched on the specific context of Camarena Health emerging, but what were the circumstances of expansion? What led it to grow since the 1980s? Yeah, I mean, I will tell you that it really didn't grow much up until probably the last decade or so. And when I came on about 15 years ago, almost 16 years ago, we really just had our site in Madeira and one up in Chowchilla. And so when I became CEO, I really just had an opportunity to just evaluate our community and the market as a whole and really just started to look to see, are there gaps where folks just aren't being served? And that is always the the precipice for our growth. It's always, is there unmet need? And if so, let's step up and and deliver that care. Definitely when the Affordable Care Act passed, that was, I think you'd see a big growth in all community health center areas. And since that time, especially in California, the state continues to expand its eligibility for Medi-Cal, for the state-funded program. And that puts more folks with coverage, with insurance, uh, and unfortunately, it's also not a very good payer. And so really, I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on the kind of care, healthcare deserts and stuff like that, but it's not an insurance that many physicians want to accept because of its low reimbursement. And so now you've got this 
uh, imbalance of folks with coverage, but folks who don't want to accept that insurance. And so as community health centers, we always accept it. We take everything, we take uninsured, Medi-Cal. And so that has really launched a lot of our growth and expansion to make sure that these folks have a place to be seen instead of just rolling into the emergency room every time they have something going on, right? And so really getting them into a medical home, establishing that primary care relationship. And so that's been one piece. And then for us, another area of growth has been just beyond kind of sites has been services. And so we have a real focus on trying to integrate. So we do medical, but we have a large dental program, behavioral health, we do optometry as well. And so for many of our patients, what we've seen is some of them just getting to a medical office is a challenge. If we can provide something close to them in the community where they live, and now they can come to that one same spot and they get their family medicine, they get their pediatric care, they get their women's health services, they can come in for a dental visit. All of a sudden, they'll start utilizing these services. It's within the same organization that they already trust, they already have a relationship with. And uh, ultimately, the goal is then to create a healthier community because you're providing easy access for multiple services. It's within the same organization. So then we can also talk to one another and we know what's going on with this patient in multiple facets of their care. And so that has been a, a big area of expansion for us as well, just continuing to integrate more services into what we do. Yeah. So kind of replicating the HMO model like the Kaiser does at a place where different kinds of people can access that maybe aren't insured in that way. Let's let's talk about hospitals for a second. This, the backdrop, obviously, of this is that Madera Hospital has closed. So as of January 1st of 2020, 120 rural hospital facilities have closed in just the span of 10 years. Uh, even though California adopted Medicaid expansions, hospitals are still having a lot of challenges. Why do you think many hospitals, including Madera Hospital, are in such dire straits financially? And is the solution really what Sutter Health did in Northern California by integrating and consolidating? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think there's any one probably uh, answer to that, but I'll, I'll kind of circle back a little bit to what I said about low reimbursement rates. And I think there's been a lot already said and written about some of the experiences that Madera Community Hospital was seeing where they're delivering care and it's costing them more to deliver that care than they are being reimbursed for it. And it doesn't matter if you're in healthcare or in a restaurant business, that formula is not sustainable. And with the Medicaid expansion and, and various counties differ, but you look at Madera County, it's a high Medi-Cal community, really most of the counties in the Central Valley are, are in that position. And so when a lion's share majority of the patients that you're serving are coming in with a, an insurance that's paying you less than what it's costing to deliver care, at some point, you're just gonna run out of money. And so I think there needs to be some real reform and look at if the state wants to continue to increase this program and get more folks insured, they have to be reimbursing providers at the hospital and the primary care at the specialty care as well at a level that makes it affordable for them to see the patients and desirable for them to see the patient that works in a, in a reasonable manner. And then, yeah, I think like many things, consolidation is, is it, consolidation is taking place across the board in healthcare, not just in the hospital world. But I think that does help because you do get some economies of scale. You can definitely not have to be all things to all people in one facility. You can leverage a larger health system and leverage some of the specialty care services and maybe not have to deliver those at every single site and be able to take advantage of, of some of those things. So I think definitely for a, just a freestanding hospital like Madera Community Hospital was or like a lot of rural hospitals across the country, it's a tough, really tough task to just try and make a go at it without being part of a larger system that you can kind of leverage some of those resources. Yeah. And I've heard a lot of critiques of the, some of the consolidation, some of the effects of it, people losing their local hospitals and being incorporated in this giant bureaucracy. But obviously the other, the flip side of the coin is how are hospitals supposed to maintain the services of populations are decreasing? A lot of people are moving to bigger cities. And like you said before, if you have low reimbursement rates from government programs, what are you supposed to do? And so it's it's kind of a quagmire. And I, I agree with you that I think it it makes sense in a lot of contexts, and maybe there's some abuses that go on with consolidation, but that's something that's, I, I mean, kind of unavoidable at this point. Sure. But, no, and I'm sure there are. I, I mean, unfortunately, anytime you get into this, there's always bad actors and, and bad players. But I think to your point, the critique of 
while we were, you sometimes lose your local hospital. But at the end of the day, if it shuts its doors, you're losing it mm -hmm. anyway. And so, I mean, obviously you don't want to lose it, but I can see where from a business standpoint, under a consolidation, there might be some uh, scaling back of services at a local hospital and folks have to travel to get some of those. But if you could keep some of the core stuff in your community, it may not be 100% of what it was, but maybe 60% is better than it closing its doors. And then you're left with, with nothing, which unfortunately we've seen here locally. And it's been a real loss. Yeah. So there's four markers that indicate a care desert. They're location, bed supply, travel time, and population. What are the sources and causes of care deserts or the existence of them in Madera and Fresno? Wow. Well, I think, I guess we'll just kind of take the obvious that we were just talking about. I mean, the, the closure of the hospital, I mean, that's just an absolute, when you look at desert, I think there's no better definition than not having a hospital in a county of 160,000 folks. I mean, that just seems unimaginable for, for that to take place, but that's, that's really big. And so that really takes into account not having beds in this county and folks having to travel 30 plus minutes to get into an ER, which is really detrimental. Outside of that, I think Fresno Madera County, as far as care deserts go, I think that's one area that community health centers are really trying to, to fill. And I think what's creating some of that is going back to the kind of this growing Medi-Cal population, but a decreasing supply of medical professionals seeing or accepting that insurance. The other piece too is, I mean, we're really seeing the, the heyday of the private practice, the doctor kind of hanging a shingle and having their private office is really going away. It's more medical groups. It's been, we're seeing a lot of that. Uh, and I, I think a lot of community health centers have had opportunities where physicians are looking to kind of exit the market to try and incorporate that practice and not just have them go away and create a bigger void. But there's a lot of unserved folks. But I think when you look at those unserved folks, it's typically the uninsured and folks on Medi-Cal. So it's kind of your traditionally underserved populations uh, that are taking place. And so I, I, we've grown a lot here. I mean, you can even see in Fresno County, there's some really large community health centers, United Health Centers, Family Healthcare Network. They've done a lot of growth and expansion. And I think they've been doing a good job in trying to, to fill that void as well. And it's keeping pace with growing population, expanded coverage, and then the decrease on, on the medical side as far as being available and providing those services. Let's transition to talking about health issues in the Valley and talking about prevention. So many commentators and critics argue that we need to transition from this concept of medicine 2.0 to medicine 3.0, where there's more emphasis on preventative care and putting a sense of ownership with patients. One leading critic even went on to argue that patients need to be more difficult with their physicians in asking for explanations and trying to understand both for the expense side of medicine, which we know it can be quite expensive for some people if they have serious medical issues, but also in the sense of having an understanding of what's going on with your body gives you a sense of power, empowerment, and autonomy. So do you think pa patients should be more difficult with their physicians? Wow. Well, I guess as a non-physician, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's in any walk of life, I think you should be under understand what's taking place. I'm sure there's a fine line there, right? Because I could be difficult with my physician, but at some point, I don't, my knowledge and my knowledge of medicine only goes so far, right? And so, you know, there reaches a point where I'm not well-equipped or have the knowledge to dictate all aspects of my care. That doesn't mean I shouldn't ask all the questions and I shouldn't feel like I understand why we're doing what we're doing or the direction that we're going on. And I think those are two different things. I think it is important for folks to ask the questions. I think patients should ask questions and at least understand the course of action that is being taken. And I think that is absolutely important. And then on the preventative side, I mean, yeah, I, I'll, I'll preach that all day long. I mean, that's a big emphasis of what we do. And going back to what we were talking about earlier with a lot of the data. So we're really data driven. We, we do a lot of data here with, with what, with the services that we provide and we can actually really see the downstream effects. A lot of the things that we try to track that are outside of what we do here is what are our ER utilization for the patients that we see? What are their inpatient hospitalizations, days in the hospital? And we can really see a direct correlation. And the more we get them into our office, the more we reach out to them, 
that that ER utilization really drops and their visits to the hospital really drop. And that's, for one, it's better to care for the patient because you walk into the ER, it's whoever's on call, whoever's working, whoever, there's no personal relationship, that physician, that staff, they don't know you as a person. They don't know everything about you. And so that's not the best place, unless it's a true emergency, of course, right? But we're talking folks going in for non-emergent visits. The other piece that that really addresses is your comment about the cost of care. So when you start looking at the overall cost of the healthcare system, getting patients to receive care in the lower cost locations makes a tremendous impact on the overall just healthcare system. And so having patients being seen with their primary care physicians in that primary care office versus the ER, avoiding those hospitalizations, there's benefits on every side of that from the patient care and their well-being and their their health to the, actually the overall cost of, of everything as well. Yeah, we definitely don't want our patients or low-income patients play, paying those hospital facility fees, which I can complain about all day, but it's a subject for a different podcast. Let's let's look at three different groups in the Valley and talk about a few different issues. So I find it really helpful to look at the San Joaquin Public Health Consortium analysis. They do really great stuff. I've found it very useful. And they broke down three different categories of people that need additional support, starting with children and infants. Um, so what preventable childhood illnesses do you think, based on your data, would be the best to attack to re- increase health outcomes for kids? Well, I, I can say that we do a lot around, two of the things that we see a lot of here in the Valley are diabetes and asthma. I mean, that's just, it's yeah. very prevalent. And so early education is big. I mean, we do a lot. Yeah, and I'll just give another plug on the community health center thing is that one thing that a lot of us do is we have large teams of health educators, which we don't always get going, you know, I don't get that in my own private doc that I go and see. And, but having, we have health educators, we've got diabetes specialists, we've got nutritionists and early stages when you start to identify signs that I might be going towards, maybe it's obesity and then it might be diabetes down the road, being able to catch that early, educate the parents, educate the kids, and really have those good conversations with them early on is really helpful. Uh, We're big on getting kids in for all their wellness visits. And so that's another thing that's tracked that we have to report and we have to show that our pediatric patients are meeting all their annual wellness visits. And again, it just goes back to prevention. And I hate, sometimes it sounds so basic, but sometimes it is. Sometimes it's just making sure that, but a lot of our, our patients, our peds patients or their parents, they don't fully understand what does that schedule look like? How often should they be coming in? And so there's a big responsibility, I feel, on our part to educate. And it's beyond just the delivery of medicine, the education component so that folks understand why they should be coming in on the early stages of their kids' lives, why they need to be coming in every couple of months or every six months, coming in and and getting all those visits. It's really It's really important. I think the more they understand, it goes back to the kind of patient just being empowered and understanding why they're coming in. And we're not just trying to drive up a bunch of visits and and inconvenience them, but there's a real benefit to what they're coming in for. And so a lot of that is really helpful. And with the asthma, we do a lot around our patients and kind of identifying what their triggers are, how to avoid them, having a plan in place for when that happens. And so I think just a lot of that education of both the the patient and then when they're really young, it's really including those parents. And we'll go so far even in our dental side. There's so much that goes on that we see these young kids coming in with so many bad dental issues. And it's just, it's a lack of education. It's what they're drinking. It's what's in the baby bottle. And so having them educated on what not to do, on what to avoid and avoiding a lot of that early on set of tooth decay when they're five, six years old. It's really sad to see, but we can start to educate the parents and empower them to just feel more involved in the process and being able to make those right decisions for themselves, for their family, for their kids. And that really starts to go a long way for for a lot of our patients. Yeah. That liquid fructose is tough. I grew up on Kool-Aid, so I get it, but (laughs) it's, it's uh, hopefully we're as a society, we're making a, a move away from that. Let's, let's talk about adolescence. So in Madeira, you have some Cameroon Healths attached to high schools. What, what would you hope that high schools would do with their adolescents to prepare them for adulthood in the health domain? What areas do you think that schools should emphasize? Wow. Well, not to 
kind of be a broken record here, but I think the education just around uh, that just overall wellness, right? Just healthy choices goes a long way. I mean, talking about the Kool-Aid and the young kids, but I've got two high schoolers <laughs> and I see what, what they're eating a lot of the time. And it's just, it happens at, at all ages. And so just, just again, arming them with the information that they can make well-informed decisions is important. You know, yeah. So we've got a couple health centers, school-based health centers that are on campus and they've been great because it allows us to kind of build that relationship with high school students and be on campus and either do education for them in the classes or just have it available for them to come on and, and be seen by one of our providers. We've got dental services there so they can come in and kind of get their regular dental care. And I think that getting them into that routine, uh, because a lot of us get into adulthood and it's just like, we never go to the doctor. And it's just when it's broke. <laughs> We'll go in, but back to the preventative side, we just don't really focus on that. And so I think being able to instill that understanding and that level of responsibility with high school aged students and, and patients of understanding how to kind of take ownership of their own health and understanding the preventative aspect of it is really important. And a lot of that, again, is just a lot of just their overall health and wellness and, and nutrition and just switching over to the mental health side of it, because we do a lot of that on campus as well. And we have behavioral health clinicians and we do campaigns with high school students that are driven by the high school students. We've done a big break the stigma campaign so that they don't have to feel ashamed or weird about wanting to come in and see a behavioral health clinician, but just that arming them with how to deal with that is big because high school throughout the rest of your life, there's just stresses and anxiety and going to college or into the workforce or dealing with your family issues. And so just teaching them ways to kind of cope and be it just kind of taking a deep breath and the kind of meditation, just not having to necessarily go and see a, a behavioral health clinician for everything, but just understanding how to kind of tackle some of those stressful moments in their lives is really valuable as well. And so that's been a great thing that we've just really been honored, honestly, to to play a role in on those high school campuses is having folks present to, to help with a lot of that directly on campus and having that resource available to them has been really great for us to be a part of. Absolutely. And the last group that I want to talk about is our elders in our communities. Chronic diseases are very common with the elderly in our community. How has Cameron Health tried to work with elders in the communities to get them uh, on regular programs and have some consistency with medications and things like that to deal with these chronic illnesses that are just endemic in our area. Yeah, and that's an ongoing process for us. I think there's still a lot to come. That's something that we is internally have had a lot of discussion with lately. I'll tell you right now, we have a team of case managers that all they do every day is they get on the phone and they call our senior patients and they check in with them. They check in to make sure if they're on medication, that they're taking the medication and if they haven't been in for a visit, they're getting them in. Uh, or if they don't have to come in and we can take care of them over the phone, we just do that. And so it's a lot of personal outreach that we're seeing with that community. And in fact, we're looking at hopefully here in the very near future, building some senior specific programs that will have a facility that is only dedicated to our senior patients so that all the services there our medical providers there, the staff are just geared towards that one population so that they can really focus in on that. And we've seen a lot of that starting to happen in surrounding communities and across the state. PACE programs are really popular and where it's really an all-inclusive wraparound services for the elderly population, for senior populations to have their physicians and therapies and nutrition and everything in one location to really kind of hyper-focus, if you will, on that group and really making sure that they have everything they need. And so we've started to build out with our case management program and really making sure that we're reaching out to those seniors on a daily basis. And our goal is to kind of pull that into a physical location that we can have dedicated just for them. Absolutely. That's wonderful. Let's talk about some organizational challenges. So as you well know, medical expenses are the number one cause of personal bankruptcy in the United States. How are you able to keep costs down at your facilities to allow people to access affordable health care. We know that staffing can be challenging. Having physicians at facilities regularly can be challenging in terms of cost. How, how are you able to approach that differently? Boy, yeah. And, you know, I'll say 
as costs go up in, in healthcare, I mean, definitely in the primary care setting, luckily it is one of the less lesser expensive venues, I mean, versus hospital settings, et cetera. And so, yeah, I mean, I'll say this, I'm always proud of as a federally qualified health center, we just as another kind of definition around it, we have to have a sliding fee scale, right? For any uninsured patients. And so our patients can come in for as low as $35 for their visits. And I'll tell you, I've been here for over 15 years and we've never raised that once. And which is important because if we're going to drive revenue, it's not going to be off of folks who can't afford it. And so, you know, the challenge is it's real. And I have to tell you, keeping costs down, we just try to find efficiencies wherever we can. But more often than not, it's we really have to try and find it on the revenue side. And I think that's where a lot of healthcare organizations are at because our biggest expense is, is our payroll and it's our people. And these last couple of years have been pretty unusual with just the rapid increase that everyone's having to face and, and compete with non-healthcare entities, right? I mean, back in the day, years ago, it was just kind of looking at other healthcare folks and who's paying what. Now we're competing with fast food chains and retailers and, and, and everything else. And so Unfortunately, that's not one area that we really have a lot of a lot of control over. And so technology is an area that we really try to utilize in healthcare and try to create a lot of those efficiencies with how we utilize uh, you know, technologies in different aspects of, of the care that we deliver to try and lower costs. And so we're always looking for that, but there's always just different programs that we try and implement that can drive revenue that's not necessarily off the patient per se, but different pharmacy programs, et cetera, that we can try and continues to the increase on the revenue side to try and offset the the continued increase because it is it's pretty alarming the rate at which our expenses are are increasing and coming full circle all the time our costs keep going up our reimbursements are flat yeah and it's a challenge that we we find and we always use this analogy but it's in a retail environment, if our costs go up, well, we increase our prices, right? We go into restaurants, we go into stores, and we go to grocery stores, wherever it is, and we see the cost of goods increasing. We don't have that option. You know, what we get paid by our payers, what we get paid by our payers, and that's not reflective of the just ever-increasing cost of, of doing business. So it, it's, it is absolutely a challenging environment to work in, but we're always up to the task and we're, we're making it work, but, you know, we're hoping to see some of those things change, especially on the payer side, because at some point it's going to break and it's across the system. It's on the primary care side. It's on the hospital side. We're already seeing that. And so definitely there needs to be some change on that end to really keep up with the increasing cost of delivering care. Yeah. And on the payroll subject, I had Bill Cummings on a while ago, who I know you know. And one of the one of the challenges that he discussed was just not having the labor resources that he needed in order to expand. And one of the things he kept repeating over and over again is if I had enough contractors, supervisors, construction managers around, we would be so much bigger than we currently are. Are you also facing similar challenges in finding talent and resources to operate your facilities? Absolutely. It's, and it's across the board with a lot of our, our different roles. It's not specific to one. And uh, and yeah, it, it, it's it's been a challenge. It continues to be a challenge. And what we've begun doing, and I think you'll see this a lot of other community health centers, is we're really trying to grow our own. And we do that from a different, a couple different levels, but even within staff that maybe come in and they've worked with us for a while, maybe they're in the front office and they want to learn to they want to get in the back office, maybe become a medical assistant. And rather than having to send uh, these folks off for a couple of years in, into a program, we're looking at ways that we can actually develop our own prog- programs internally to allow them to be trained while they're here on the job and kind of go through that program to do that. And so we, we're doing that quite a bit. And then even on the professional side, we, we partner with several different universities for medical professionals, we have a great partnership with a, a school out of Arizona, A.T. Still University. They have a physician assistant program. We receive five students from them every year, and they spend a year with us doing all their clinical rotations. And that's been a great pipeline for us in that every year we have five students graduating. And on average, we probably hire three or so. They have a hometown scholar program where we can actually endorse one of someone from our community 
so that they get into the program. It's a very competitive program to get into. They go to Arizona for a year. They come back and do their clinicals with us here, and then they stay on. And now they're actually working and serving patients in the community that they grew up in. And we've got probably three or four of those folks now working with us here at Camarena that some of them were patients of ours when they were younger. Some of them worked at the high schools that we have school-based health centers in. And so it's a really cool full circle, you know, perspective that we get to see and bringing them in. But for us it, across the board, it's really falling on us to start training a lot of these folks ourselves and almost kind of developing the workforce that we need in order to deliver the care. And so that's really the probably the biggest way that we're going about trying to tackle this. But a lot of our partnerships that we have with different teaching institutions really pays off. Being on the high school campuses are great. We do a lot with our students that are in health career pathway programs. We allow them to come through our health centers and shadow and build that relationship with them so that down the road, they, they kind of want to come back and, 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 and be here and be in the community. And so we've definitely seen that pay some dividends for us, but it's a it's a big challenge across the board with with the healthcare workforce for sure. Do you think part of the solution is easing some of the credentialing requirements for certain kinds of medical practices and and I'm trying to think of the word here certain procedures that only physicians are allowed to do and expanding the scope of what people at different levels of certification can do. Do you see credentialing as part of the problem? You know, I, I feel like there's a pretty good breadth of, of you know, leeway there. I mean, we use a lot of physician extenders, physician assistants, nurse practitioners in our practice to complement the physicians that we have. And that definitely helps a lot. If we were solely dependent on physicians, that'd be really challenging. <clears throat> I think one thing that we've talked about at the state level, trying to see if we can get some movement on is allowing some interstate licensure flexibility, because there's times where we will hire a physician from out of state and they're ready to work. And we're sitting and just waiting for a month, two months, just to get their license in California in place. And so some of those things on the licensing standpoint, both for nurses, for physicians, for a lot of that, I think would definitely create a little bit more opportunity and ability to bring folks in a little bit, a little bit quicker. The other piece that, that I'll touch on in terms of really helping with the need is when we look at preventative care, and this goes back to kind of the the insurance and the payer side, but it's, we they all got to catch up to one another. But for a lot of the preventative care that we deliver or that we can deliver, it doesn't have to be the old traditional, a patient and a doctor and an examiner. That's very old school kind of mindset of medicine. But when we're talking about prevention, we could be out somewhere in the community, we could be in their home, we could be on the phone, it could be a nurse, it could be a health educator. When we ask the question about allowing other folks to do procedures, it doesn't have to go to the point of procedures, it could just be who's interacting with this patient, who's delivering the necessary information that they need to stay well and be healthy. But to your point of making sure that we're covering our costs, if it's not a reimbursable visit, at some point, it's not paying for the health educators or the medical assistant or the nurse that's doing the care, right? And so it kind of keeps forcing us back into this routine of, well, at some point, we got to get them in front of the doctor so we can bill for that visit and generate that revenue, right? So, and there's a lot of work. I'll, I'll tell you, there's a big system. It's called an alternative payment methodology, APM, that we're working through our California Primary Care Association and the Department of Healthcare Services to try and develop a a different model for care in California with our Medi-Cal population specifically, where basically it's more of a capitated managed care environment where we're not so bound by those old traditional visits, if you will. And it'll allow us to better expand the care team in terms of who's delivering that care to the patient. And of course, it's all managed and tracked by the clinical outcomes and making sure that you're not shortcutting trying to save money and not ever seeing a doctor right now, your clinical outcomes and the patient's health deteriorate. So there's checks and balances and making sure that everything is going appropriately, but really moving towards that model of, of care where we can have a larger care team and different players in that team and deliver the same or sometimes even better outcomes than what you might see in a more traditional setting. Cause then you're also kind of having to churn that patient 
volume, right? And sometimes if you get someone else in front of that patient, they can maybe spend 20 or 30 minutes with them. Yeah. And it goes absolutely. back to that patient being able to ask more questions and feel more empowered and more knowledgeable about what's going on. So I think that would really help with the whole overall care system and the shortages because we can start leveraging different folks on the team to deliver the care that we need to. Yeah. For the longest time, our healthcare system has been built around band-aids, not bananas, but it's got to be both, right? It's got to be both. They got to have the banana and the band-aid when that thing does happen, but we can't forget about the bananas or we'll just be We'll be in trouble. Let's talk about working specifically with immigrant communities. What are some of the specific cultural and societal challenges with working with immigrant communities to improve health outcomes? Yeah, so I think a lot of it is, I guess, going back to the old traditional way of doing things, right? Just sitting back and just expecting them to walk in the door mm. isn't going to work. They're not going to care that they need. And so we need to meet the patient where they are. And I say that from a couple of different things. It's culturally having folks that understand the challenges in, in their lives, understand nutrition and, and dietitian stuff, right? I mean, that's a big one because you get into your, they've got diabetes or they're hypertensive and you're trying to wean them off certain things, but there's such a cultural kind of uh, impact to changing some of those foods or, or some of those things, right? And what does that mean in the household if one person can't eat this, but now they feel bad because they don't want everyone else to suffer because they can't eat. So it's really multifaceted. And so really when we approach that, it's one, having folks in our care team that can understand and and show that they understand those challenges around that and, and being able to address those things in, in their language. And again, from the cultural aspect, and addressing those things and showing that we're sympathetic and empathetic. That these aren't easy asks just because we say, hey, stop doing X, Y, and Z. We can't just assume it's an easy fix. And so just really having that empathy towards our patients and understanding the challenges that they may have and trying to meet what we're asking them to do. The other piece that we really focus on is, and you'll see this with community health centers, is that we're not nine to fivers. You know, we have a lot of our immigrant communities especially if they're farm working communities and they're in jobs that they don't get to just take two hours off in the middle of their workday to go to a doctor's office. And so if nine to five is their option, they won't go to the doctor or they'll go to the ER after work or on a weekend. And so we really, this goes back to our doing when we do our needs assessments and our community needs assessments is when do you need to access care? So we're open till eight or nine o'clock at night. We're open Saturdays and Sundays. We have a mobile unit that we can drive out to different aspects of the community and be right there for them where they can access us. And so when I go back to saying kind of meeting them where they're at, it's from every aspect. It's geographically where they're at. It's the time of the day. It's the cultural aspect of it, the language, and, and just making that a much more accessible service for them in every aspect of their life, you know. And so that's really what we focused on. We have community outreach teams here that all they do is they go out, they're not clinicians, but they're out in the community. They're engaging folks. They're talking to them about what we do, how they can access the services. We have a great group of folks. We call them our promotores and they are grassroots. They're volunteers. They're from the community and they're interested in helping create a healthier community here in Madera County. And they come in, they get trained on all sorts of different aspects of health-related issues, and they're embedded in our community. And so they're able to kind of really preach, if you will, the concept of wellness and, and getting into the doctor with their neighbors and their folks at church and their family members. And there's just a different level of trust that that comes with that versus it just being someone in a, in a medical building telling them what's important. And so those are some of the different approaches that that we've taken and we've seen some really good success with that. Yeah, absolutely. Trust is instrumental in getting people to get on board. And especially when you're asking people to change things that are part of culture and part of family life it can be incredibly challenging. And that means you have to kind of sell it to the whole family in some ways to get right. everyone on board. A couple more questions before we wrap up. So at the beginning of COVID-19, there was a provision that basically allowed for continuous enrollment in Medicaid. And that's coming to an end, as you know. Yeah. What What's going to be the impact on our community and what's going to be the impact on how Cameron Health approaches working with the community? 
Well, I think the immediate is just going to be less folks covered. Yeah. I mean, that's just kind of the basic. You're going to have a lot of folks that had uh, health insurance coverage with their Medi-Cal and they're going to fall off. And the challenge there is that some of them don't have to, they're still eligible, but they're just going to start, there's going to be a disenrollment process that they need to be involved in and making sure that they don't lose that enrollment if they are still eligible. And so part of the approach that we're doing here is we have our roster of folks and patients that are on Medi-Cal. We're looking at that. We have a team of insurance enrollment specialists that their sole purpose here is someone walks in the door and they're uninsured. Our first question is going to be, well, why? We want to check off any possible eligibility that that they might have to get them into some sort of a program. And so we're we're looking at that now and really trying to be proactive with a lot of our patients and trying to prevent them from unnecessarily falling off of that of that role. On the other side, there's just going to be folks that are going to fall off because they're just going to lose their eligibility. And for them, we'll continue to offer our services. We have our sliding fee scale that we can have them come in and, and continue to receive services. But it's definitely going to be a large impact. And I'll go back to the cost of doing business. When we have folks that were previously enrolled, at least we were getting the Medi-Cal reimbursement to when those patients fall off and become uninsured, that's also a challenge for a lot of us who are seeing these patients because it's also going to have an impact for us on the revenue side of things as well. And so there's definitely an impact on both sides of the ledger here, both on the provider side and, and the patient side. But uh, we're really making a concerted effort to try and get in front of as many patients as possible and get that kind of schedule as they kind of go through the different phases of, of disenrollment to make sure and catch them and try to keep them on and help them through that process. We walk them all the way through. We do all the applications. We submit them on their behalf and we do all that for them to really make sure that they get in there. So, but it's definitely going to be a big challenge. It's going to be, I think, felt across the board quite a bit. So let's talk about kind of big picture for where Camarina Health is and where you hope it will go. So where what are some of your goals over the next five years for where you want to take Camarina Health? And where do you hope it will be 20 years from now when you've maybe moved on and that's gotten new leadership and continued to move in that direction? That's a good question. I mean, we get asked a lot like, oh, what's next? You know, are you can open another location and, and the answer is always yes, likely. <laughs> but for us, it's really... It's the underlying goal is we just want to continue to make sure that folks here on this community have timely access to primary care. I mean, that is the underlying goal of everything that we do. And we start to see that. I mean, we start to see where folks are having to wait for a longer period of time to get in for a visit. And that's an issue that concerns us because if you can't get in to see your primary care, are you going to walk into the ER, right? And now that's what we're trying to avoid. And so for us, it's just a never-ending evaluation of What's the population growth look like? Where are there parts of the county that are being developed that are growing more rooftops, more residents, more folks that need services? Where can we put something? We kind of like to try to be kind of that neighborhood healthcare, right? Where it's kind of close to where they live and easily accessible. And so I'd say over the next several years, we want to continue to just make sure that folks are active. And I, I give this answer too. If we didn't need to open another site, and everyone is good, I'd be just as content with that, right? I mean, our our measure of success is not the number of facilities that we have. It's that folks aren't going without care unnecessarily in our community. And so, but I know we continue to grow. The other piece that I always want us to be in a position to is just, we always want to be ready at a moment's notice to meet the community's needs. And the hospital closure, I think, was a great example most recently because none of us got a lot of notice. And within a couple of weeks, we had to figure out we were referring patients to the, excuse me, to the hospital for specialty services that went away. And so we've actually now incorporated that into our own facility. We've reached out, we've got all the different specialists to come in, and now we're running a specialty clinic here so that there's still specialty services available. There are two primary care clinics closed. We took almost, almost 7,000 patients wow. instantaneously. So we had to ramp up and hire folks and and those are the things that we can't plan for, but they're really important when they happen in a community that that they can be addressed. And so I think that's on COVID, of course, was an example across the board with everybody, but we had to be ready to provide what was needed. We had to be ready to pivot relatively quickly. And so I just always want us to be in that position that at a moment's notice, if something comes up, that we're here and that we're here for the community and that we can provide them that service. And so 
Yeah, that's really kind of my vision for it is we just always want to have a great patient experience. We want folks to look forward to coming in and being treated regardless of the service that they're coming in for, regardless of what their situation is in life, that they feel like they can always come in, be treated well, have a good experience with us and feel that we're looking out for their best interest for them and and for their families. To close, my favorite section, book recommendations. What are two or three books you'd recommend to the audience? All right. Well, outside of all the mindless fiction stuff, I have to jump no, that's into every so That's mine too. Now, if, you know, I pivot back and forth between like stuff that's helpful and then just stuff that makes you turn your brain off for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I will say the last two books I actually read, one of them actually I love so much. I went out and bought a copy for everyone on my, on my leadership team. It's Think Again by Adam Grant. Mm-hmm. And so that was really cool. I, just from a leadership perspective, it was really great. And just sometimes we get really stuck in, in how we do things and how we go about our conventional ways of, of leadership and, and organizational kind of management. And so he was great. I actually look forward to reading a couple of his other books. I really enjoyed, really enjoyed Think Again. I would highly recommend that for really anyone in a, in a leadership position. And then the one I just finished recently is Atomic Habits. And that one, so is James Clear and... Really cool backstory with him and just kind of how he got to this this point. But it's just a really cool book on just how to build habits, uh, very different perspectives, the different characteristics of habits. And and that was really good for me. I've started to kind of use some of those already in my life in terms of kind of different strategies that he talks about in terms of building positive habits or breaking habits that you kind of love his. Stop. I love his concept of habit stacking. That's one I use quite a bit in my life. A series of things that you always do right in a row, and then it becomes a force multiplier. Yeah, the habit stacking was the first one I, I ran with, and it's I've been able to stick with it, and it's been really good. So those are two books I really enjoyed. And again, I said folks that are in leadership or just busy lives, I think those are both books that I think could be pretty beneficial. So. Okay, yeah. give us one of your escapist fiction though, just to just to kind of a little little fun with it too. Oh man, so I listen to a lot of the Michael Connell, the Harry Bosch series. Oh, I, I love just, Harry Bosch. I love you know, it. I I got on it. I got on him late, which was great. So there was a bunch that I could you know, run through, and I drive a lot. I live in Clovis. I work in Madera, so I use Audible for most of my books. It's great. I just jump in the car and I just listen to them and. So that was that's probably one of the series that I got most into, and then I went through a little phase of going through all the old Stephen King novels that I never, never read. Uh, and so those were a lot of fun as well. I got through a lot of his older stuff and then some of his newer series as well. So those were a lot of fun as well. So it's fun to jump back and forth and read some stuff that's like meaningful and helpful for you in your everyday life. And then just kind of jump into some of the fiction stuff too. Did so. you enjoy the TV adaptation of Bosch? Yeah, I watched a little bit of that. Yeah. I didn't get through all of it, but I thought they did a pretty good, uh, pretty good job of it, but yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you for talking to me today. This has been really enlightening. And I know that listeners are going to have a, a bigger perspective on health in the Valley because of our conversation. So I appreciate yeah, of course, you I was happy time. to do it. I appreciate you reaching out and allowing me the chance to chat with you. Fresno's best. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Fresno's best. We'll see you next time.